Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, home of fearless conversation. Today, we're talking about transgender and gender identity legal issues, especially as they might apply to the church. Recently, the uh, Department of Education and Justice Department issued guidance to public schools and educational institutions receiving federal funds regarding civil rights protections for transgender students. Under that guidance, a school must allow transgender students access to a restroom and locker room facilities consistent with their gender identity. A school may not require transgender students to use facilities inconsistent with their gender identity or to use single-user facilities, such as family restrooms, when other students are not required to do so. Also, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, issued bathroom guidance prohibiting employers from requiring that employees use the bathroom associated with their birth gender and prohibiting employers from requiring transgendered individuals to use a single stall bathroom, commonly called a family restroom. The EEOC does not exempt houses of worship from this interpretation of Title VII, I understand. So what does this mean for churches and religious schools and even things like church youth camps? Even before these government rules came down, some parents of transgender children or or kids who identify as the opposite sex have asked churches and youth camps how they would accommodate their children while at, say, summer camp or on weekend retreats. We're going to dig into all of this in a spirit of fearless conversation. Our guest today is Eric Niffen. He's an attorney from Colorado Springs, Colorado, specializing in legal challenges facing religious institutions. Welcome, Mr. Niffen. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. It's great to have you. Seems that uh, these rules nowadays are coming down quickly and often. I'm curious, how do these rules apply or not? to churches, Christian schools, and Christian camps? Um, there's no easy answer on that, and the reason is all these laws are set up differently, and they all have different triggers. Uh, I'll take, first of all, um, Title IX, which you mentioned. Now, when we think about Title IX, we typically think about um, rules about equity between men and women's sports, but the law is much broader. And the law generally says that when a school, public or private, receives federal money, indirectly or directly, then all of its activities um, are subject to this federal law barring sex discrimination. So the law goes back to the 70s. The law actually just says sex discrimination, but it has been uh, interpreted uh, really broadly, uh, and most recently, as you as you mentioned, uh, to cover gender identity. Mm-hmm. But the trigger there is federal funds. And uh, for colleges and universities, um, there are all, you know, there are only a small handful. I think I could count them on one hand of colleges and universities in the United States um, that are not subject to Title IX, uh, and that's because uh, the number one way that college universities are um, receive federal funding is because students receive federally subsidized student loans. Mm-hmm. And so that even indirectly, even indirectly, so the, the theory is 
you benefit as a school because your students have access to this program and to artificially uh, inexpensive loans. Mm -hmm. And so you have to go uh, all the way out to that extent in order to eliminate your students' access to that money in order to protect yourself from the reach of Title IX. And the way this affects um, private schools, uh, private Christian schools, um, it could be a federal subsidized lunch program. It could be um, some other sort of assistance for special needs children uh, that I encourage uh, my clients to look for these indirect sources of money. Just to kind of, because at the outset, I think most private, private schools are going to say, oh, we don't receive federal money. But it's when you go down and look at these little buckets mm. that there are ways in which uh, even private Christian schools can be subject to the law. And then you mentioned, secondly, you mentioned uh, the EEOC mm -hmm. and its rules on uh, bathrooms. There, I believe, what's at issue is Title VII. And so I think that's the law that that ruling came under, that guidance. And Title VII applies to employers and uh, non-discrimination among employees. And there you're right. Uh, Title VII does not give a categorical exemption for churches. It does not say, some states do, that if you are a religious organization, you are categorically not covered under the uh, under a non-discrimination law. And so then you have to look at not only at the organization, but you have to look at their employees. And under Title VII, the exemption for religious organizations is only insofar as a religious organization is hiring people that are uh, connected with carrying out the church's mission. It's not, a, it's not a, sort of a loose definition. It takes some work to try to figure out exactly what that means. But at the outset, if a church says, look, we're just hiring um, a guy to do the landscaping. We don't ask him about his faith. We don't uh, inquire about this, that, or the other. We just want to know if this person is a competent landscaper. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case then the EEOC is going to say, okay, well, then that's not something that there's an exemption for. You are still subject to federal law uh, with your relationship with that person. And so that's one of the things that I go through very carefully with my clients. And this is the subject uh, of a paper that I've written for the Heritage Foundation uh, late last year, is on how to take churches and Christian schools through the process of making sure that they have that they have put themselves in a position where they can claim the exemptions that they need to carry out their mission in the public in this rapidly changing world. And so in the case of uh, you know, a, a maintenance person at a church, at the outset, a church might say, yeah, we really don't care who the person is. It doesn't have to be a Christian. But then if you start asking some of these other questions, they might say, oh, yes, well, we, we of course couldn't have someone doing this, that, or the other in that position because that would reflect badly on the church. Okay, now that you've thought through that, now we need to go and make sure that our employment documents are, are squared up and that the church is thinking through these issues so that it is in uh, a good position to explain why it must have different non-secular criteria that it uses to select these employees. Hmm. So bottom line, let, let, let's start with uh, a regular church these uh, bits of guidance that have recently come down, does this mean that most churches uh, fall under this guidance that requires them to allow people to choose the restroom based on their choice of, of uh, gender? Well, what we know, so what the EEOC is uh, empowered to do is it's empowered to tell people how it interprets 
the law and how it will apply the law. Now, the, the EEOC is a federal agency, and when an employee uh, files a complaint, it's the EEOC that does its initial investigation that can decide based on its uh, investigation whether it thinks there's been discrimination. It can um, authorize a lawsuit. It can try to mediate um, a solution to that. So even before something gets to the court, the EEOC can muscle in and cause mischief and can require a church to have to get a lawyer and and and, and, and can cause a lot of problems, just insofar as that goes. Mm-hmm. And so what we know is, insofar uh, as the EEOC is concerned, this is how it's going to apply the law. It's going to say that sex discrimination includes gender identity discrimination. Now, what we don't know, and what the EEOC cannot control, is whether a federal court will agree. Mm-hmm. And so it's still, you know, the law just says sex. And so it's still up to a judge to say, okay, uh, we know what the government's position is. The government's going to say that this covers transgender, but that's not obvious because it's not in a law. Congress has not decided to do that. And so um, that's something that is still uh, in the – we're still seeing what courts are going to do about that, and there's arguments that can be made on both sides, as is usually the case. So um, it's not you, – you can't say that this is what the law is. You can say that this is how um, – you know, civil rights groups, how aggressive plaintiffs, how um, at least this uh, administration uh, under President Obama is interpreting the law and how it's trying to imply the law. But it's uh, it's not exactly the case that that's what the law is, because it's really just an argument or interpretation of an existing law. Well, at this point in time, anyway, what are the risks, the real risks, legal or otherwise, for churches and other faith-based organizations for not making accommodations for those who identify with the opposite sex? The risks are, I think, a lot of confusion internally. There's going to be a lot of consternation within the community. Uh, There is a federal investigation. There's potential lawsuits. There is public relations issues. Um... And so it's not uh, just, you know, what is what is the fine that's going to be assessed or the order that's going to come out as a result of a lawsuit, but it's a lot of these other things as well. Um, and that's why I think it's really important for churches and Christian schools to think through these issues carefully. Um, I uh, represented a, um, a church here in Colorado that is in a touristy area, and the church was trying to think through what its marriage policy should be. Mm-hmm. What is it going to do when two people who are on vacation come up to the church and then they say, we'd like to get married tomorrow. And it's, you know, it, could, it could be a gay couple or it could be a couple that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the people in the couple has been divorced and the church uh, doesn't know if there's been biblical grounds for divorce. There's a huge range of issues. And even before you get to these legal problems, there's a pastoral problem of, you know, making someone really upset, making people uncomfortable. Um, two people sign up for a wedding, and they tell all their families and friends, we've reserved a date at this church at this date. And then later on, the church decides we can't marry these people. So there's a lot of pastoral issues that even come on top of all these legal issues mm-hmm. that are there in, in today's culture. And I think the best way to handle a lot of these things, it's not a cure-all, but it helps a great deal, is just to have clarity, to have clarity within the church, to have clarity uh, within the church community, to say that, look, this is where we stand as a community, uh, and therefore these are our standards. And if the community understands that, 
you know, some people may not agree, and that's, you know, that can't be helped sometimes, unfortunately. But at least there's clarity, and so the confusion uh, is avoided, the confusion or surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that applies to people in the community who want to uh, approach the church and get married. You know, if they're at the front end, if they look on the church's website and they understand what the standards are, then then that difficult situation mm-hmm. is avoided. For an employee, if the beginning of an employment um, relationship. The, the church's standards are very, very clear that if something happens down the line, an employee is going to say, well, I don't really like this. I don't like being fired, but fair is fair. I was told. And the same thing is true of students uh, at, a, at a private school and then also the parents of those students as well. They say, yep, that's, that's the school that I signed up for, and there's my signature on a piece of paper that said I understand the standards by which this school operates and why they have those rules. And uh, having clarity at the front end is something that helps in court, of course, but it also helps in these very human, difficult right. situations and helps provide clarity. Yeah. We'll come back to uh, some remedies or preparations in just a moment, but first I'm curious, uh, why are these new rules, or at least guidance on the rules, coming down now? What, what's the real issue that the government is attempting to address here? And, and really, how big is the problem they're they're supposedly trying to solve? Um, I think those are good questions. I think the the, the, the motivation here, um, certainly it's towards the end of President Obama's term, and so um, there's less concern about political consequences, and I think there's more uh, concern for uh, his legacy and uh, for for accomplishing certain things. So I think there's a certain way in which they don't feel they have to perhaps be as careful as they were before. Uh, another important factor is the Supreme Court's decision last year in Obergefell, which um, uh, stated a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Uh, and these other developments um, have come along more naturally in the wake of that decision especially because of the way Justice Kennedy wrote the court's opinion that talked about um, the importance of liberty and uh, the way that uh, religious groups um, can stigmatize people, um, I think pretty aggressively sort of waving waving the Supreme Court's finger in the face of religious groups. And so there's things like that that I think have made it easier um, for the administration and for gay rights groups to really be on the offensive and to continue to put um, Christians and other uh, people who, who believe in traditional uh, sexual morality on their heels when it comes mm-hmm. to this. And so I think these forces really feel like they have the wind at their back and, and are continuing to move forward. As you look down the road, where are we headed with all this? Do you see that there are going to be additional actions, additional changes that we should be expecting? I think at some point... At some point in the future, uh, I think this this um, you know, and it may be another generation that people have a little bit more balance to the way they see, see things. And I think we'll we'll have some sort of something. It'll it'll feel more settled. But I don't know when that'll be. I don't know how we're going to get there. Uh, for the time being, in the short term, it sure seems like these attacks on religious liberty are going to continue. Um, we've seen a couple things in the last couple weeks come out of California. There's a proposed law um, that is out there that will remove state funding, and California is pretty generous. Uh, I think uh, I don't think any other state gives out as much money 
uh, in grants to private universities, as California does. And this proposed law will remove all such funding from schools that, uh, in, in the words of the state, discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, another uh, lawsuit was just settled last week where a Christian dating site is being forced to um, open its website and its services up to um, same-sex couples, mm. a Christian dating site. So there, there seems to be no slowing down in this aggressive movement against um, religious groups that want to operate in the public square and that do not uh, accept the um, uh, this aggressive new interpretation of sexual norms. Mm. Uh, and it looks right now that for um, professionals, for uh, institutions of various sorts, there will continue to be a squeezing on their ability to operate in the public square, whether that's employment decisions, whether that's services that are opened up to the uh, public, whether that's sources of funding. It looks to me like there will be uh, squeezing on all these ends. Hmm. Well, I know you've done uh, a lot of work with your clients in helping them to uh, prepare for these changes that are happening now and may maybe coming down in increasing velocity down the road. How should churches and other faith-based organizations prepare and guard against uh, some of these unwanted consequences? The first thing um, that churches and religious groups need to do is to sit around the table and really think about um, what they need in order to carry out their mission. And that begins with uh, looking at what their convictions are on these issues, but it also extends to how those convictions affect the way they interact with the public. How, again, how they employ, how they select students, how they select volunteers. Um, and at that point, then look at, well, where is the sort of the law intersect with these different things? It could be uh, funding from public sources or from private sources too, uh, especially a lot of um, uh, service organizations receive grants from the government, receive grants from, say, United Way or some other private group. And those sources of funding may come with uh, increasing strings attached that, that tie to these issues. Um, and so there's, uh, there's things that can be done legally, but I think the first thing to do is for the church or the religious group to come around and really think about what it believes and what that means for the life of the organization. A lot of times, a pastor will call me and say, you know, what should our marriage policy be? And I have to call time out and I say, look, I'm just a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'm, <laughs> you're the church. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, what, who, you should, who you should marry or who you shouldn't marry. And the reality is that there are good options available for religious groups even now. And I think that that good news uh, needs to be, continue to be um, communicated uh, in, in the Christian community. Um, I'll just take a school, for example. Uh, if a Christian school wants to say, we want our theology teachers, our Bible teachers in our school to be on board with our faith, but as for the rest of our community, we really, um, we, we're, we're not particular. That's fine. I can work together with that school, and we can develop those policies, and we can uh, be in a really strong position if someone wants to challenge them. 
Um, but the same thing is also true for a school that wants to go much further and say, you know what, we, we view who we are as a community and what our mission is as a school differently. And that means uh, not only theology teachers, but math teachers, gym teachers, secretaries, uh, and the maintenance staff. Everyone soup to nuts has to be on board. We want them all in the staff meetings. We want everyone praying together for students. We want any student to be able to go up to any adult in the school and be able to um, have that adult approach that person in a pastoral way and, and be able to pray with that student. And that's what we want to offer to our students. That's what we want to offer to our parents. And my response is great. We can do that. And courts, even in the Ninth Circuit out in California, uh, which is uh, you know, thought to be, in many ways, is a, a, the most hostile part of the country for religious liberty claims, um, even the Ninth Circuit has, in the last few years, uh, approved Christian ministries that have said, you know what, everyone in our organization, even though it doesn't seem to be like this obviously churchy organization, has to be on board with our religious mission. And the court said, fair enough, that's, that's what you believe and that's what you've done, and therefore you're entitled to um, have those standards. So it really, it really does begin with um, a really careful discerning about what it means to be a religious organization and, and what that means for the life of, of the organization um, in a lot of different ways. And it's that careful conversation uh, and sometimes groups do it on their own. Sometimes I help them with that. And that's, you know, after we're there, then we can start working on, okay, well, how do we make sure that the documents, uh, the articles of incorporation, the handbooks, the other sorts of policies, um, make sure that we're, we're placing this out there and so that we can explain either to employees or to a court um, why these standards are there and why the church is entitled to religious accommodations. I can see how uh, bringing this clarity can can be helpful for a church when it uh, relates to their own members and their own activities. What about when uh, the church building is used for outside groups? Either they're invited in or they come in and and pay a fee to use the facilities, and uh, they're not coming in with those same beliefs of who should use which restroom. Are are you speaking of here uh, when the church is renting out its facilities or just sort of people coming in off the street? Either way, if if the church uh, decides that they're going to offer a public meeting on uh, whatever in the community, or when an outside group comes in and they want to rent uh, the assembly hall for an evening for a meeting, uh, either one, you're having people come in from the outside who are not members or even associated with the church. Generally speaking, when we're talking about interactions with the public on something like that, what that usually calls into play are a group of laws called public accommodation laws. And these laws have a long history in the United States, um, and they were generally focused on um, uh, on race issues. But they they now cover all sorts of types of discrimination. And this is one area in which it's hardest for me to give broad guidance, because uh, unlike employment discrimination laws, which tend to be pretty much the same from state to state, from city to city. Public accommodations laws change a lot. Some public accommodations laws cover pretty much any entity that sells good to the public, and those laws tend to have really strong, pretty broad exemptions for religious groups. Other laws are very narrow, and they say by a public accommodation, we mean a restaurant or we mean a hotel, and they'll, they'll name very specific types of entities, and those laws tend not to have exemptions because it seems that the idea is that by naming restaurants 
and hotels and, and some other types of organizations. They're naming entities that are already not religious organizations. And so what a given church or school has to do is different depending on the state and the local law that's, that's at issue there. But generally speaking, uh, I've found that these problems are solvable. So a church as a church, simply as a church, is a private organization first, and uh, it's not in the business. It's not selling tickets. It's not, uh, you know, an, uh, this is not a movie house that's selling tickets. This is uh, where people are coming in off the street into a private uh, entity, and on top of it being private, it's religious. And insofar as that's what it's doing, so just having its doors open for a service, it is not going to be um, required under any law I've ever heard or seen of to uh, to comply with um, non-discrimination rules, certainly about, say, gender identity. Hmm. And But this gets different once you start uh, looking more like a business, and this is where churches need to be careful. And so when you have a church that rents out its hall for uh, a wedding, for a wedding reception, for some sort of a group meeting, it needs to be careful because the way some of these laws are written, um, a church could inadvertently step into a situation where it's now uh, subject to that rule. And so, broadly speaking, without looking to the specifics of each law, what churches need to do is uh, a combination of two things. The first is to make sure that they're explaining to whoever is renting the space that this renting out of a space, that this using of the church's space is itself part of the church's ministry. So the church is not saying, look, we just have some regular old gym, and if you want it, you can have it. The church you know, wants to say something like, you know, we have this space here because of the generosity of our members, because people are tithing. Um, we believe that this whole building is the result of the generosity of the people of God, and we only have it for that reason. And therefore, we have to be good stewards in how we use it. I think people get that. That makes sense. And so uh, to extend the church's ministry out into all of its activities, so it's not just worshiping in the worship space, but it's also the way the gym is used or the way some, some classroom is used. And so that, that's part of it is to, is to make sure that everything is really clear in the church's policies and in the, uh, in the application form that goes out to people to want to use it, that, hey, something religious is going on here. Even if, you, if it's not obvious to you, that's the way we see it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second, and this is really important, is to make sure that this doesn't look like a business. And sometimes this requires a sacrifice on a church's part because maybe there is a decent amount of income that comes out that comes in from renting this space. And sometimes it's a sacrifice that needs to be made. But what I generally recommend is, uh, you know, churches should 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 look at what they're doing and and the fees they're charging, and should um, make sure that those fees are really only there so the church can break even. And breaking even is perfectly fair. And so you say in the form, uh, we're going to charge you an insurance fee because we have costs associated with opening up our uh, space to different groups. Or we have a maintenance fee because someone's going to need to to, um, clean up the space after you use it, and so therefore we're going to pass that cost along to you so it's not borne by church members. And that's fair enough. And that explains to the people who are using it is, look, the church isn't trying to make money on this. And, you know, if you did a survey, uh, the church's cost for renting out its space should be less than that of, you know, a secular business is doing the same. And so you could explain to a court, look, this isn't a business. We're, we're not trying to make money here. In fact, we're not. 
Uh, and by doing those two things, by emphasizing the religious nature of what's going on there, and by keeping uh, costs low so that it's uh, clear that the church is just trying to break even, not trying to make money, it's, if you do those two things, it's, it's very, very, very unlikely, nearly impossible, that a court would say that uh, a church simply by giving outside people an opportunity to use space, that it is subject to those non-discrimination rules. So with that in mind, um, courts, uh, excuse me, churches are awfully safe, I think, from having uh, the law come down on them for operating as a church uh, and, and saying that uh, the church has to, for example, open up its bathrooms to people it doesn't want to. Hmm. So the preparation required to be prepared for these things, think them through, get them in writing, it applies uh, not only to uh, facility use, but uh, churches are going to have to get into things like uh, identifying what their position is on, I assume, gender identity, uh, sexual abuse policies, volunteer criteria. Uh, it sounds like a, a lot of work ahead of the, the typical church to be prepared for all those things. All those areas are really important, and they're important, um, first of all, at, at sort of a theological level, to, to think through these issues and to think through what um, the church's convictions are on these matters and what it means for the church's life. Um, and then also, of course, as a legal matter as well, is looking at where these things are um, uh, written down and, and how the rules are communicated within and without the church community. And um, I think at that point, you know, I, this is something new, but it's also something old, too. And this is something that I, I mention to the groups I speak with as a way of encouragement that for 2,000 years, the Christian community has always developed rules and doctrines in response to controversies. There never was a group of people in the early church that sat down and said, you know what would be cool? Let's come up with something called the Trinity. Let's figure out how this works. Um, it, it was never, these doctrines never were developed in a vacuum. It was always because, uh, you know, some theologian or some pastor out there came up with an idea and someone reacted to it and says, I don't think that's right. And it was only in response to that tension that doctrine was developed. And sometimes these were uh, controversies within the Christian unity, and sometimes these were controversies more largely in the world. And so that's you know what's happening again now. And so the new part is that now there are conversations in the culture and even within the Christian world about what marriage means, about what human sexuality means, about what gender means. And uh, so there are new challenges. Uh, and so the new thing is the nature of the challenges, but the old thing is figuring out, uh, in response to what's going on in society, uh, is figuring out some re-articulation, some clarifications about what Christian beliefs are on these issues. Mm. So that is something both both new and something uh, that is both new and old, but it shouldn't be that scary for churches, because this is something the churches have always done. Yeah. But then once that happens, then the work needs to be done to figure out um, you know, how this is going to work at, a, at sort of a policy level. Well, pausing here for just a moment for a word from our sponsor, you know, for making sure you're providing a safe environment in your church or organization, we recommend the services of Shepherd's Watch, offering a full complement of background checks as well as helpful information uh, to keep you and your people safe. And you can find out more information at churchvolunteercentral.com on uh, how you can use the tools of uh, 
Shepherd's Watch to help keep everyone safe in your church. Mr. Niffin, laws current and future do vary from state to state and even from city to city. For, for preparation, the kind of preparation that you're talking about, I assume that one size does not fit all. How do you recommend people stay on top of the changing legal landscape? That's a really good question. Um, you know, the news that comes out is usually at a national level, and those sorts of trends are really important. Um, but there is no quick, easy guide that's going to give church leaders um, a reliable picture about what the law is in their area. And that really is something where I think um, getting legal advice is really important. Um, and that's, you know, obviously a specialty of mine to do this sort of work for churches. Um, and it is, uh, it is a specialty. And I think it's important for churches, no matter where they are, no matter who they, who they contact, to keep in mind that the, uh, the general attorney they rely on for tax advice or for uh, employment issues may not be the right person to guide the church through these really um, tricky waters. The law is changing a lot, and it would be easy to find someone who uh, is too cautious or is not cautious enough. Um, This is just an area that is changing a lot and uh, is pretty scary for a lot of attorneys and non-attorneys alike. Yeah. And I'm sure uh, you're able to navigate some of those uh, issues that, uh, when you get into them, are far from black and white. I can imagine, a, uh, even if a church uh, comes down to the point where they believe that, let's take the uh, EEOC ruling uh, about bathroom usage, and they decide that, well, our church does indeed fall under that EEOC parameter, uh, and they... They walk forward in that uh, direction, but then uh, they may be worried about, well, what happens if somebody in uh, our one of our church bathrooms or if our church has a gym and locker rooms, what happens if something happens there with people of different uh, actual genders uh, come into some problem there? Are we then open to liability for what happens there because we were simply trying to follow the EEOC ruling? And that's a that's something that uh, not just Christian groups, but all sorts of groups are having to face right now. Uh, and this has happened, um, you know, for example, the University of Toronto uh, decided uh, some time ago that it was going to open up its uh, dorms to having um, gender-inclusive bathrooms. And then not too long after that, um, a couple female undergraduates reported that they saw what looked like a male hand with a cell phone camera or video uh, when they were taking a shower. Oh, wow. And so the University of Toronto, uh, for no ideological reason, but for a very practical reason, out of just student safety, said, time out. We're putting this new policy on hold. We obviously have to think this through. Um, so this is that, and, and that liability issue is something that's really um, a new thing and is unclear. Uh, certainly not many years ago, um, it would have been common sense to say, look, we weren't going to allow boys and girls bathrooms no matter what they say, because, come on, you got to be kidding me. Uh, and now it's more complicated. Uh, but there's, there's, this is a brand new area of the law, and there just is not a lot of clarity there in terms of uh, what that means, even for a group that doesn't have ideological problems with um, uh, transgender persons. Uh, but just how do, how do you negotiate this space 
Um, you know, out in Seattle a couple years ago, there was uh, parents who dropped off their 14-year-old uh, daughters for swimming practice at a YMCA. And uh, these 14-year-old girls were then confronted with uh, a biological male undressing in front of them in the locker room. Mm. And the YMCA, you know, was uh, flustered by the whole situation, but um, thought it through for a couple of days and then said, you know what, you 14-year-old girls and you parents, the problem is with you. Mm. You're the ones who are not being uh, accommodating here, and you're the ones who have to change. Uh, these are new problems, and um, it's hard to give anyone advice on exactly how this is going to shake out or um, to whom a court is going to point the finger if something goes wrong. And so it's just a dangerous um, area for really for everyone at this point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll keep our listeners posted here on uh, Holy Soup, the podcast and the blog, about some of the issues facing the church. And be sure to subscribe to both the blog and the podcast. As always, your comments and questions are encouraged. And you can actually jump onto the comment section right now, if you like, and uh, address your questions and comments there uh, as well. Thank you, Eric Niffen, for all you do to protect our religious freedoms and, uh, and uh, keep us out of jail. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really good to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. We'll see you next time on the Holy Soup Podcast.